The Christian life, we can say, is a life of discipleship. So honestly, the question is not whether you are going to imitate somebody, but who are you imitating? We need, we need real men, real women that can show us, that we can see with our eyes what a godly life is. open your Bibles to Titus, Titus chapter 2, Titus chapter 2, and if you can, I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be covering verses 7 through 8 this morning, but let's read the whole section here. Here's the word of the Lord. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train, wise up the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, holy, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. You may be seated. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in the sight of the Lord. It was last year there, there was a, uh, a new study from the Gallup together with Amazon. And Trace Bauer wrote an article so about this new study, and she said, fascinating new, fascinating new research suggests role models may be even more important than you thought. When people have had positive role models, they are more likely to say that their career, their job is fulfilling. 
to feel established in their career and to have a career which, is, which pays enough. According to a new poll by Gall Gallup and Amazon, which included almost 4,000 early to mid-careers adults. And what this article is saying, together with the, 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 the research there, is that as they were studying, men and women in the workplace, they realized how those people who had role models of people who were good workers, established in their work, those people who had good role models, they had better work ethics. They were better to do their jobs. They were more satisfied with their jobs. And that's nothing new. That's just applying for the career and jobs, but that's nothing new. Since the beginning, people have always learned through imitation by role models. That has always been the case. We even, we say that most things in life are caught instead of uh, taught. And if you have kids, you know very well how that works. How they learn so much by imitation, by example. Think about how imitation begins even without conscience. We are not conscious that you're imitating others when you're a little kid, a little baby. But that doesn't stop there. We continue, that's the way that the God made us. We continue imitating others. We grow by looking at other examples and imitating those examples. The Christian life, we can say, is a life of discipleship, and this discipleship is very well exposed through imitation. So, Preben he says in his commentary, he says in, in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, when Paul says, imitate me, he says, because Christian faith, because the Christian faith is relational and expressed in real life experiences, the key word for discipleship is imitation. Letting people follow your example. You remember when you first got saved, you probably learned how to pray from imitating those who are praying around you. Isn't that true? So many of your habits are from imitating other people. So honestly, the question is not whether you are going to imitate somebody, but who are you imitating? And who or what are you setting the pattern for for other people to imitate as they are looking to your life? And that's something that Paul has been emphasizing here. Starting chapter 1, when he establishes the, the qualifications for elders. And we saw that there is nothing extraordinary there. Because the elders, the pastors, they are supposed to be an example to the congregation of the ordinary Christian life. And then he moves to chapter 2. And he starts talking about the older men and the older women in the church. How they are supposed to be the role models of the younger ones. And now Paul is going to move and tell Titus, once again referring to the ministers as they also must be a role model to the church. So we continue going through this, this section here and we come to part six, and that is the call to pastors, leaders, to be examples of a healthy life, a godly life. So here is 
where we are, let's go to verse 7. In verse 7, Paul says, Show yourself, show yourself in all respects to be a model, look at that, a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So Paul now, he's talking about older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and now he turns to Titus. Titus, it's your turn now. He's addressing all the members of the church. And Titus, he represents here the leadership of the church. And there is a sense that the leaders of a local church, they must be an example to the whole body of godliness. To the whole body. And you may, you may even women, yes. Because godliness has no gender. Holiness has no gender. Of course, there will be areas where, as a man, the man will be falling much closer. But remember that godliness, holiness, is for all in the church. All in the church. And that's what Paul is pointing to Titus. Now it's with you. I have called you, Titus, to teach. I have called you to rebuke. I have called you to exhort, all using your words. But now I'm calling you to live out. Now we need to do, we need to act. He just told Titus to exhort the younger man. Look at that, verse 6. Likewise, exhort the younger man. And now he turns to Titus and says, but don't use only your words. Use your lifestyle. Because it, hypocrisy is when you're telling people to do something that you don't do it. We're going to talk more about that. So that's why Paul turns to Titus now and says, hey, you have been telling all these people to behave like that. And now let me just remind you, continue living that holy life that you have. And he says, show, look at that, show yourself. To show something means to bring to the public. Let people see your lifestyle. There is no such thing as hiding holiness, hiding godliness. The last thing you want to be known as, boy, I had no idea that he was so godly. I had no idea that he was holy. No. Let people see your holiness so they maybe give glory to God. And Paul says, show yourself. Be a display of a cruciform life. And we need, we need real men, real women that can show us, that we can see with our eyes what a godly life is. So Paul says, show yourself, and remember that in all respects could be related to the young man or it could be related to Titus, and I think both work. So he says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Depending the translation that you have, I'm using the ESV as a model. If you have the NIV or the Christian Standard, the NAS says an example. Or if you have the King James, you have a pattern. Show yourself to be a pattern. Show yourself to be an example. The Greek word here, to pause, is a fascinating word because it was used for impressing something with a blow. So you'd impress something with a blow, and they would leave the mark. 
And there was the two paws. There was a mark that people could see. So, for example, if we go to John chapter 20, verse 25, the same, the same Greek word is used for the hands of Jesus, where they can see the blow of the nails there. Left an impression. Left a pattern. Left, left a two paws. So people can see that the, the hand was impacted by the nails. So when referring to the Christian life, the word to pause, example, pattern, it speaks of the profound mark and impression left by the gospel. It's like there was the gospel blow, boom, in this person's life. And people can see that the gospel impacted their life. So he's an example. He's a two-pause. People can look, and just like we can look to Jesus' hands and see the scars, we can look at this person's life and see that the gospel has impacted his life, has changed his life. So he says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And we know that this is nothing new. The, we see throughout the New Testament frequently the call for all Christians, but especially leaders of the church, to be an example to the congregation. Sometimes we have a hard time with that. What? Following another man, being an example, that's only Jesus. That's a false piety. Because look at the verses with me. So Paul says, 1 Corinthians 4.16, I urge you then, what? What? Be imitators of me. 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Philippians 3.17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. 1 Thessalonians 1, 6-7. He's talking to the church. And you became what? Imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became what? Do you see the pattern in the Christian life? You imitate godly people, and then you become an example to be imitated. Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians. For you yourselves, chapter 3, verse 7 through 9, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves what? An example to imitate. First Timothy 4, verses 12 and then 15 through 16. Paul writes to Titus, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers what? An example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. And then he says, Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. And as they are seeing the progress, they are imitating his progress. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. Hebrews 6, 11 and 12. 
And we desire each one of you to show the same ur earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Hebrews 13, 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their, their, uh, their way of life and what? Imitate Jesus? No, imitate their faith. Imitate them. One more. You see how it's all over? <laughs> all over. So I exhort the elders, 1 Peter 5, among you. Shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but what? Being, an ex being examples to the flock. So we are commended to follow the example of godly people in our lives, men and women. We are there are three things we need to do. We need to look at and follow the example of the good ones, the godly ones. We must look at the ungodly ones and say, I'm not imitating those ones. And then we need to become an example to others. So there are three things we need to do. Look to the godly ones and follow their example. Look to the ungodly ones and do not follow their example. And then become an example to other people. And look at what Paul says, even in 1 Thessalonians, he said that the whole church, even churches are supposed to imitate other churches. We as a church, we look up to, we imitate other healthy churches. Amen? We look at other churches and say, we need to imitate this. That's a godly, that's a healthy church. We want to imitate churches that are faithful in doctrine. We want to imitate churches that persevere under suffering. We want to imitate churches that are sacrificial in their giving. Consequently, we, as a church, must become an example to other churches. The hope is, as we grow in holiness, in godliness, this church becomes an example to other churches, where they can say, look, Salem Reformed Baptist Church, you want to be as sacrificial as they are. You want to be devoted to the Lord as they are. You want to be faithful in suffering as they are. Amen? And we need, we need real life examples who can model before us godliness. We all here must have models of gospel empowered lives that we follow and imitate. And let me tell you, you must be in a church where your leaders are worthy of your imitation. Because if you have no respect for your leaders, you need either to repent, because then you have a, 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 a sin of arrogance, or you, you are in an unhealthy church. If your leaders are not worthy of being imitated, you need to find a different church. It's that simple. But you need to be, it's very clear, 1 Peter 5, Hebrews 13, all this passage where Christians are called to be in churches where they can look at their leaders and imitate their faith, their lives. And, and let me just remind all of us here that this call is not to just 
imitate or follow those who are unapproachable, especially with the internet. It's easy for us to have unapproachable examples. So, for example, John MacArthur, Vody Bauckham, Martin Luther, John Calvin, R.C. Pro, especially these last three, it gets really hard because they're dead. <laughs> but you think about, you have no idea how Stephen Lawson lives. You have no idea how Vody treats his wife and family. You don't. You need to be in a church with people that you can look up, you can touch. I love, I love all these men. Spurgeon has been a great influence in my life. I read a lot about Spurgeon. But there is something that Spurgeon or any of these celebrity pastors that we have, that we highly respect, there is something that they cannot do. They cannot lay hands on me and pray with me. They cannot come to the hospital. They cannot visit me. They can, I can't, I cannot see how they treat their wives and kids. So, you got to have real, real people in your lives that you can touch, smell, hug, be hugged by, that you can imitate, can pray with you. And if you say that you don't have any godly men or women in your church or near you, then we have a problem. <laughs> I don't know any person that I can imitate. Then we have an issue. And this pattern of imitation is vital, especially in the pastoral life. It's vital for all Christians, but especially in the pastoral life. Because I can stand here Sunday after Sunday, Wednesday after Wednesday, preach and teach the Word of God. But if you cannot see my actions, that preaching is not complete. There's something lacking. Imagine if I'm preaching about giving sacrificially, and I preach with all my heart about the importance of being generous and sacrificial in your giving. Because that's what the Bible calls us to be and do. And then suddenly you look at my records of giving to the church and it's like, man, this guy is so stingy. <laughs> right? I can't do that. My life must match with what I'm teaching and preaching and exhort people to do. Imagine if I preach about praying and the importance of prayer, but I'm never present at the church prayer meetings and you never see me praying. My family would never see me praying. Imagine if I preach about loving your wives like Christ, but you never see me treasuring my wife and loving her. Actually, you see a cold, weird relationship. Imagine if I preach about raising children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, but you see none of this in our lives. Imagine if I preach about self-control, but what you see in my life is all lack of self-control. Imagine if I preach about the importance of missions, but I'm always unwilling to leave my comfort and go on a mission trip. Imagine if I preach about hospitality, but my home is always closed. Nobody ever comes to my home. 
That's called hypocrisy. That's the word that Jesus used. That's hypocrisy. In Matthew 23, there is a series of oracles of judgment that Jesus speaks over the leaders of Israel. And he says in Matthew 23, verse 3 through 4, For they preach, but do not uh, practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. That's what false teachers or men who are not qualified for the pastoral ministry do. They tell the church what to do, but they themselves are unwilling to do. And so Paul is telling, telling Titus that he cannot, he cannot just teach faithfully. Teach faithfully is a great part of the ministry, but it's not just teach faithfully. You must live faithfully. And I know that for us, the language of imitating, following, role model it can, can sound strange, can sound kind of prideful. But actually, it's a very humbling thing. It's a very humbling thing. It's a tremendous responsibility and duty of a Christian leader to have to say, imitate me. Imitate me. There is no pride. There is just humility because it's heavy. It's deeply heavy to have the burden of living a life that people are constantly watching you and you need to be an example in all areas of your life. I like what Stephen Fowle, he writes, he says, rather than reflecting an arrogant desire for self-aggrandizement, the idea of imitation was crucial to Paul's moral discourse. For Paul and for all Christians, the only arrogance surrounding the language of imitation would be the, the arrogance of those who think they can walk the path of discipleship without observing, learning from, and imitating those who are already further down the path. The only arrogance in the topic of imitation and examples is when you say that you don't need one. And sometimes you hear leaders in the church, do not follow me, just follow Jesus. <coughs> and, and I understand, understand where the, the idea is. But how bad would it be for a pastor to stand and say, I'm going to preach about marriage, but do not follow my example when it comes to marriage. I'm going to preach about finances, but do not follow me when it comes to finances. We're not talking about perfection. We always struggle and grow. But there must be a pattern where those who are teaching must be living what they're preaching and teaching. A healthy local church will have leaders and members. We saw in Titus 2, leaders and members who are role models of gospel-impacted lives. We need people in the church, starting with the leadership, people who have been by the gospel, impressed, received a hard blow by the gospel. And you can see that mercy, mercy impacted their life. Grace impacted their life. That's what we need in the church. And, and, and Titus, 
is exhorted to be an example in everything, in works and words, life and ministry, orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Warren Wearsby, he says, he writes, it's not easy to pastor a church. You do not punch a clock, yet you are always on duty. You must be careful to practice what you preach. You must be the same man in and out of the pulpit. Hypocrisy in speech or conduct will destroy a man's ministry. No pastor is perfect. Hallelujah. Just as no church member is perfect. But he must strive to be the best example possible. A church will never rise any higher than its leadership. And yes, the leaders, but all Christians, we are always on duty. Amen? We are always on duty, and there is always people watching us to see if we live out our confession of faith. So my question is, who are the men or the women that you are imitating? Who are the people that you spend time with to imitate and follow and grow in godliness? Another question, who are your friends? Who are your friends? Are your friends people that you can look up to and imitate? Are your friends people that you delight to be with because you are imitating their faith? You're growing godliness. And are your friends people that you can say, imitate her, imitate him, because they love Christ? Are you a man or a woman who others should be looking to to imitate? Those are very important questions because it's flowing from this text here. And especially for those who aspire to be an officer, those who aspire to be in ministry. And when men tell me, I want to be a pastor, I want to be an elder, I want to be a deacon, hallelujah. But now the stakes are higher for you. We are not going to lower that. It's higher because you're preparing for a life that's going to be like that. In all areas. So Paul says, he tells us, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. So Paul is going to divide it here, the life of the, 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 the minister, in two areas, works and words. The works and words. So first, the works. Look at, with me to chapter 1, verse 16. As Paul is talking about the, the false teachers that were in Crete, the false teachers, he says, chapter 1, verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their what? Works. So do you see how important works are? Because now Paul is telling Titus and the elders and the leaders that your lives must be an example of good works. Why? Because... False teachers, they profess to love Jesus. They profess to know God, but their works verify that they do not know God. They do not love God. But we see you, Titus. We see you, elders in Crete. We see you, pastors. You must live a life 
it's exemplary in good works to show that you are in Christ. Sometimes we don't like, especially, especially in Reformed Circle, we don't like very much works because we are prone to think about the Roman Catholic Church. And, but actually, works are vital. Not for our salvation, but to show that we have been saved. Ephesians 2.10, Ephesians 2.10, Paul says, For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus. And he just told verses prior. That was by grace. By mercy. Nothing that we did. We are created in Christ Jesus. For good works. Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus. For good works. Which God prepared beforehand. That we should walk in them. So there is an inseparable connection between. Good works. And salvation. If the root of your heart is good, if the root's good, the fruits are going to be good. That's what Paul is telling us. The good works verify that there is salvation in that person's life. And the leadership of the church, though imperfect, and is still carrying the consequence of sin, is called to be an example to the congregation of good works. We're going to talk more about good works towards the end of chapter 2, because he says that Jesus saved us and made us a people zealous for what? Good works. So we're going to talk more about that. So there is the works, and now Paul moves to the words. Show yourself in all respect to be a model of good works and in your teaching. Now they speech, the words, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. Paul is going to emphasize three main areas here of the, the pastor's life. And you see how he comes back. We are talking about older people. And the older people in the church receive the exhortations. Then we move to the older ladies. Then we move to the younger ladies, the younger men. And now we come back to the pastors, the exhortation. So he says that three areas of the, 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 the pastor's ministry must be always growing in these virtues here. And that is integrity, dignity, and soundness. Soundness of speech. The first one is he, he says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching. The teaching here is a summary for the whole preaching and teaching ministry of pastors. So much of what we do is with our voices, is teaching, teaching people. So it's very important because this teaching ministry of speaking must be marked by integrity, dignity, and healthy speech. And that's so important for us today, brothers and sisters. There, there has been a, a, a growing movement where pastors have been using very unhealthy, very dirty language behind the pulpits to, to sound cool and to attract other people. Profanity, graphic sexual imageries that would never speak from this pulpit, dirty jokes have been spoken from the pulpit. Uh, and that, that's right, Phil Johnson calls this the pornification of the pulpit. Just to look cool and try to attract people. Men behind pulpits using words and language that have nothing to do with dignity, integrity, 
and sound speech. And know that Paul never calls Titus to contextualize because the people in Crete had dirty language. People in Crete were horrible, lazy gluttons, evil beasts. And Paul never tells Titus, Titus, just a little bit, just a little bit, become like the Cretans. Just a little dirty joke here and there, you know, it's, it's, it's just going to be fine. Paul never does that. Paul never calls Titus to embrace the Cretan culture in order to evangelize the pagans. Actually, it's the opposite. Christians in Crete and the leaders of the church are called to live a completely different life and use a completely different language that was used in Crete. And I'm not talking about the Greek. I'm talking about the language, the dirty language that they had there. So Paul says that the first area in pastoral ministry is integrity. The Greek word here speaks of something whole, without corruption. There's no division. It refers to in integrity of motivation and integrity of the declaration. So you think about the preacher, he must have integrity in his mo motives. Why he's teaching, why is he preaching? Integrity. And also integrity in the preaching, not compromising the truth, not letting the truth be corrupted. There must be integrity, purity in the speech of all Christians, but especially in the leadership. What the pastors say should have enduring quality and not be shaky. Not only integrity, but he also refers to dignity. Look at that. That's an interesting word, an alien word for us nowadays. So many people have no idea what dignity is. We are a, a culture, the society, far away from any, any dignity. Uh, and the Cretan culture also had no dignity. The word semnotus refers to a manner or mode of behavior that indicates one is above what is ordinary and therefore worthy of special respect. In Latin, we have gravitas, the gravity, the heaviness. And there is gravity connected to life and ministry and teaching. And the pastoral ministry must have this dignity in all areas, in all areas of life. There must be a manner of behavior that is above the ordinary. How a pastor behaves, how he speaks, how he teaches, how he dresses himself, how he ministers, and how he interacts with others must be above the ordinary. It must carry a gravity, dignity. Some versions have seriousness. And here's why. Because we are not dealing with superficial matters. We are dealing with eternity. People abiding for eternity under the wrath of God. We are dealing with marriages. We are dealing with lives. Those are heavy subjects. You can never lose sight of the gravity of the gospel. And sometimes you hear people, and it's sad. You hear, I have talked to many people, and I always ask what church you go to, and why do you go to that church? And you hear some Christians say, oh, because the pastor is so funny. Because the pastor is funny. It's like, humor is wonderful, it's a God gift, but... 
You don't want the doctor that's coming to perform a heart surgery on you to come to you like a clown. You don't want your attorney that dealing with come to you like a comedian. There is the heaviness of the, what they're dealing with and the dignity that is required for that office. And sadly, many churches today cater to the entire worship service to be just youthful style. So that instead of urging the young to grow, the whole church becomes immature. Instead of bringing dignity, seriousness, gravity, and the heaviness of God's glory to church, we are embracing a juvenile and irreverent culture around us. So we see pastors behaving, dressing, speaking, teaching in a way that makes the culture feel comfortable. Let me say that the Cretan culture had nothing of dignity. And yet Paul never tells Titus and the other elders to, to relax on that. Just relax. Lacking a little bit of dignity is not going to be an issue. Paul never says that. People must come to church and encounter Christians in a local church and say, wow, this place is different. There's something different about this place. And we have been losing all sense of dignity all around us. We call that a casualization of our society. Everything is casual. You go to church websites and they have the page, what you expect. And so many church websites, I go and I see what you expect. And it's always something casual. Dressing casual. A casual worship. Just come casually. That's our, that's our society, a casual society. Casual meetings, casual dress, casual conversation, even business casual we have. I haven't seen a church yet what you expect. Expect the heaviness of God's glory. Dress yourself with the most dignity because you're not meeting anybody. You're meeting the king of kings. I haven't seen any church in what you expect have that. It's always casual. We do not worship a casual God. We worship the King of kings, Lord of lords, who is full of glory. Amen? And we must resemble that. And when we do that, there is joy. There is joy. There is tremendous joy. We can never lose sight of dignity, the heaviness of God. Next, Paul says, Show yourself in all respects to be a, a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity. And now he comes to a word that it's very important, especially in Titus. Sound. We saw that sound, the word sound, who get from where you get hygiene means clean, healthy. There is no sickness. All around us, we just have people with sick language. It's always sick teaching, unhealthy. And Paul tells Titus and the pastors that the church must be marked by sound speech. The teaching must be healthy, must give life to those who are hearing. And that's what pastors must be marked by, by speech that is healthy. That's why, brothers and sisters, all of us must be very slow to speak. The Bible says that those who speak much sin much. We must be careful to make sure that the speech, what we are saying, is sound, is healthy. 
if you have ever been to, a, to meetings with me, you know that I'm very slow to speak. Sometimes makes some people angry, but I'm slow to speak because I want to make sure that what I'm saying matches Titus 2. has integrity, dignity, and it's sound. Have you noticed when you get angry, you lose control of your temper and you say the nastiest things and then you regret later? Like, oh man, uh, please forgive me. I said all those things I should have said. So I need to calm down. James tells us, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to be angry. And that's why James tells us also that not many should be pastors because of the severity of the judgment. So, Paul says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, sound speech that cannot be condemned. Speech that cannot be condemned. Here's the thing. Condemned we will be. The question is whether the condemnation being brought is right before the eyes of the Lord. Paul says, he gives us the purpose here, the purpose, he tells us, so that, here's the purpose, so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Paul's purpose here for an exemplary life and ministry is the glory of God. Is the glory of God. Notice that he puts us, not you. He was talking to Titus, he was using you, and now he moves to us. Why? When a well-known pastor falls, and maybe you're watching the YouTube video and you look at the comments, people are not talking about him. They're talking about Christianity. People criticize Christianity. And that's what he's telling us. So that God will be glorified. An opponent may be put to shame. The opposite would be what? That he will shame you. For rightly, and rightly so because of your behavior. And shame us and bring dishonor to God's name. And it's terrifying. It's a terrifying thought. Just, just you think that our lives can bring such dishonor to the name of the Lord. And I have a prayer and I made that public. That I would rather the Lord kill me before I bring dishonor to his name. With some serious sin. Lord, just kill me. Just kill me before I bring dishonor to your name. Paul is not saying that a faithful ministry will protect you from having enemies. That's not it. People will make accusations. But when these accusations are brought into examination, the accusers are actually put to shame because the accusations cannot stand the test. I like what... Edmund Hibbert says in his commentary, he writes, No critic will be able to point out anything in this man's ministry justly open to censure or rebuke. The original suggests the, original suggests the picture of a courtroom where the judge can find no basis for the accusation of the plaintiff. 
Every faithful teacher must at times declare doctrine to which some rebellious hearer, listener, may object. But such objection must prove unjustified upon faithful examination. Accuse they will. Accuse you of all sorts of things. But the question is, when it's brought to people, can they look at those accusations and look at your life and your ministry and say, actually, that's a mess up accusation. That's the question. And Paul tells us that we have enemies, opponents. Sometimes people don't like that language, but that's the language of the Bible. Let me tell you, hostility, hate, slander, lies, public defamation of one's character, that, that doesn't come from friends. <laughs> friends don't do that. Enemies do that. Opponents do that. And our weapon is just to keep living holy lives. Keep being exemplary. Keep preaching the gospel. And by doing that, God is glorified by bringing shame upon their heads. Thomas Oden, in his commentary, he says, Let those who deliberately try to find something against the pastor be themselves put to shame, feeling foolish, finding nothing evil to say. And how do we do that? How can we do that? The Bible tells us. We look to other exemplary men. That's one of the reasons I love Spurgeon, a man who suffered so much, unjustly accused of so many things, and yet kept persevering, persevering in the Lord. Other men that I have contact as pastors in town, in Portland, men that I can look up to and say, I'm imitating their faith. I can imitate their faith. But ultimately, we all got to look to Jesus, right? That's what the author of Hebrews says, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And we look to the Lord Jesus, who borrowing the language of Titus here, he showed himself in all respects to be a model of good works. Can anybody be a better model than Jesus of good works? No. In his teaching, Jesus showed integrity, dignity, sound speech that could not be condemned, and yet he was what? Condemned unjustly. Crucified on a cross. But later he was justified by the Father. So, let me just finish this sermon with a wonderful example. It's an example of one of my favorite missionaries, John Patton. Some people call him jo John Patton. I call Patton, I follow after Piper, who calls him Patton, John Patton. The great missionary uh, to the New Hebrid Islands. And... He says in his biography, that, and he's there ministering the New Hebrides with the cannibals, bringing the gospel to those people. And he says that the person who most influenced his life was his father, his dad. By listening to his father's prayers at home, seeing how much his father was concerned about evangelizing the <coughs> pagans and taking the gospel to those dark nations. He says that when he was about to live, to go to Glasgow, to go study, there was a very, very long walk until the to find the train station. Some people say it would take about 10 hours walking or even more. 
And he writes in his biography, John Patton writes, my dear father walked with me the first six miles of the way. For the last half mile or so, we walked on together in almost unbroken silence. His, li his lips kept moving in silent prayers for me. And his tears fell fast when our eyes met each other in looks for which all speech was vain. We halted on reaching the appointed parting place. He grasped my hand firmly for a minute in silence and then solemnly and affectionately said, God bless you, my son. Your father's God prosper you and keep you from all evil. Unable to say more, his lips kept moving in silent prayer and tears we embraced and parted. Later he tells about all his sufferings and he says, the memory of that scene not only helped by God's grace to keep me holy, pure from prevailing sins, but also stimulated me in all my studies that I might not fall short of his hopes and in all my Christian duties that I might faithfully follow his shining example. James Patton, his father, was not following any new trend in raising kids. He was simply living the Christian life before his children's eyes. And we need, we need men and women who show us what the cruciform life is like, a life shaped by the cross. We don't find that. It's rare. That's why we need examples. We need godly people who can show us what a cruciform life is like. And all of us here, we are called to live those lives and be an example to others. All of us here who are in Christ Jesus, we have no excuses. We are the champions in giving excuses, right? Oh, you just know my background. I have never had a role model. Join the group. Many of us never had a role model. But that's why Paul says that you need to do these things. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared. You have no excuse. Christ has appeared in your life. And you have the greater example in Christ. Not only that, I give you a church full of people whom you can imitate. So we have no excuses. By the power of Christ in us, we who once were bad examples to people. Many of us here were horrible examples. Many of us were those people that the moms would say, please do not hang out with so and so. Right? By the grace of God, Christ in us, by the blow of the gospel in our lives, now we can and must live lives that are pattern of the gospel that other people can look and imitate. Amen? And if you're outside Christ, today's the day. Run to Jesus. His arms are wide open. Embrace him. Embrace him. He will not let you go. Run to him. And you have the best example. You have the power to live a godly life. Amen.
Father, we thank you so much for being kind towards us, speaking to us, treating us not like animals, but as your children, giving us the true bread, giving us your Holy Spirit, giving us your Son. Help us. Help us to live a life full of gratitude. Help us to be a church. Help this church, Lord. Help us to be a church that imitates other godly churches. Deliver us from arrogance and pride to think that we are the only ones. We are the best church. Forgive us if you ever think like that. Help us to humble ourselves, imitate other godly churches, and help us to become an example, a pattern to others. And Lord, please, please, Lord, may this wonderful flock pray for their elders, for their pastors, that we may live this type of life, Lord. We desperately need your prayers, the prayers of your people. So help us. We want to bring glory to you. We want to glorify your name. We want to treasure you, love you. Because you have loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.